Hello and welcome to the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council, where we look at the people to people connections that underpin the Australia China relationship. If you're new to the podcast, you can find all past episodes and subscriptions at our home at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. On this episode, we take a look at China's complex policy ecosystem with China Policy's Managing Director Philippa Jones. Philippa takes us through the public policy debate within China and how understanding the trajectory of the Chinese economy can impact and complement Australian business. We look at the reliability of official government statistics, China's progress towards rules-based governance, and Xi Jinping's main policy priorities. We also look at major policy initiatives, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, Made in China 2025, and China's climate change policy. A regulatory and trade policy specialist, Philippa Jones set up China Policy following a career in research in the public sector. Philippa has previously worked with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the EU-China Trade Project, and also holds an honours degree in Chinese and economics from the University of Oxford. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Beijing with Philippa Jones, Managing Director of China Policy. Now, Philippa, what is China Policy and what type of work does it specialise in? Well, we call ourselves a macro policy research and advisory. What we do is we monitor both regulation and legislation and how it plays out. So we look at the implementation, and the response of the policy community. In fact, I often say that we monitor the whole arc of policy development. So policy development starts here with five-year plans, uh, then it goes, we see lots of announcements and discussion in meetings, we see the agendas of the meetings, so we know what the senior leadership are thinking. Then we see policy percolating through the State Council and out into legislation. During this time, we are also monitoring what the policy community is saying about it. Now, one of the things that is different about China compared to a multi-party state Mm. is that the policy discussion is very open. Mm. In a multi-party state, the government very often makes policy and discusses policy behind closed doors, if not behind locked doors, and only when it feels it's good and ready to face the opposition, will it come out and put policy, put it up for comment, public discussion. Here, very often, the policy discussion is what drives the policy and the government is looking at how the policy community is reacting. So there is a much more open and robust policy discussion here, often, than there may be in a multi-party system. There are some sectors, of course, that are not quite as open, so you're not going to see so much discussion, often about critical financial policy moves, but to some extent you do. I mean, at the moment you see the the financial policy being discussed and we know exactly what's happening. So so when you say the policy community, do you see debates within that community? You certainly do. Okay. And, and, And what do you mean by the policy community? So, how policy 
traditionally here has been nutted out mm. is that ministries had affiliated universities, research institutes. These now have become a bit sexier and call themselves think tanks. Mm. But there is a great many organisations that contribute to the policy discussion. And policy departments in central ministries have been much, much smaller than they ever are in a country like Australia, for instance. I remember when I was working on in trade policy, and I was particularly uh, in the early part of the 2000s, I was working on agricultural trade policy. Okay. The Ministry of Agriculture here had six people working on agricultural trade policy. In Australia, we had a whole division almost mm. working on trade policy. So we would have many, many, many times. Who are the typical clients of China policy and what sort of client services does China policy offer them? So as I was saying, we monitor. Yep. So what we do is that in a very different way to the press, who is always, of course, looking for events and movement and a story, we so systematically follow the policy that comes out. We provide a very regular coverage, mm. whether there is something that spikes the press or media attention okay. or not. We then analyse, summarise this in English, and it goes onto our website. On a weekly basis, we aggregate main policy movements. We organise our team into eight portfolios. We have what we call our four core economic portfolios, which are finance, industry policy, science and innovation policy, agriculture and fisheries policy. And then we have what we call horizontal portfolios. And we call them horizontal because they really affect all the economic portfolios. That is trade policy, geopolitics, social policy, where we look at housing, education and health, mm. and then governance and law. Okay. Across those portfolios, one Monday, four of them put out their position, the next Monday, the other four, so we alternate. And what a position is, mm. is that each portfolio looks at what's happened over the last fortnight, what has moved, what is the most important movement. They write a few paragraphs about what has happened. They link to the important policy and commentary. And then each portfolio puts up a policy mover, so a personality. And one of the things that China policy has always focused on is that the policy environment and the policy in China, as in every other administration, is driven by the policy community. But in China, what again is different mm. is, as I've mentioned, a lot of this policy community is outside the official ministries. Mm. So it's very often it is easier for companies governments, embassies, to talk to people in the policy community because they'll find them in, in research organisations, in universities, in lots and lots of organisations that are not strictly in government ministries. 
officials can be difficult to contact and to talk to, whereas the broader policy community is often easier to access, and there are a lot of people. We have hundreds and hundreds of profiles of people in the policy community. Mm. Is it tricky legally to function as a research advisory here in China? No, not okay. no, no, we don't have um, any particular difficulties. We are a wholly owned foreign enterprise. We are dealing with published sources. Okay. And I think that we offer a very good service to the Chinese government. Many of our clients are local embassies and other governments mm. because we make clear what the Chinese government is saying. The other thing I would say about our position is that we take a neutral position. We don't have any particular preconceived notions about what China should be doing. Mm. So we feel our job is to bring to our clients what China says it's doing, where China says it's going, and what from the aggregate of the work we can do, we, we cover, mm. we see as China's development trajectory. Now you mentioned looking through Mandarin-based research sources. Um, what, what can be learned through Chinese language research sources that isn't available in English? Mm. That's the million dollar question. It is the biggest hurdle for governments, corporations, everyone dealing with China, that it is such a massively online community. It's a, as I've just explained, the policy environment. It's, it's a massively robust intellectual community mm. too. It has, in certain sectors, of course, that there are constraints. But in the broad policy sectors that we cover, there is not really much constraint as to what people will discuss. Oh. And unfortunately, for most of the world, that discussion is in Chinese. And so where we come in is that we... And I think that this is, this is actually probably even more valuable than the regulation and legislation. There are lots of organisations that if there is something that is important to you, you will willy-nilly find it out, I'm sure. Mm. But in terms of what the Chinese policy community think about it, mm. this is a very valuable area that we work in. And we find that our clients are particularly interested in what is the response in China. Mm. What do they think is up and what do they think sure. is down? Yeah. Is this going to pan out? Um, and so what about the, the data that is available in, in China? How reliable is information collection here? Um, so, for example, something like GDP growth figures, can, can well, we take them at face, face value? GDP growth figures aside, mm. <laughs> I would say this is a policy, a numbers-driven, target-driven. So there are targets. And perhaps what we would say about those GDP growth is that there are targets. And it's a bit like... Uh, the Australian Public Service spending all their money mm. before the end of the financial year. They're massively trying to think of things to do because they may suffer next, okay. next yeah. year. Here, there are targets 
And so you may, you may see a flurry of activity as provinces are trying to meet their targets. At the moment, of course, I'm, I'm sure your listeners will be aware, there is a lot of discussion about provinces not providing robust numbers. Mm. What is happening here overall is that one of the Xi Jinping's administration's major policy areas is called rules-based governance. Okay. They are bringing in more rules, they're bringing in more supervision. They're particularly, they're concerned about statistics. So what we will see over time mm. is, I'm sure that we will see these things, the numbers improving. Mm. The other thing, of course, is there's lots of ways of checking the numbers. Mm. So there are lots of informal ways of checking the numbers. You mentioned um, a lot of policy, well, all policy in China begins with the five-year plan. How important is it for an Australian business, say, to look at a five-year plan to see the trajectory of where the Chinese government is heading in that period? Well, let me give you an example. Mm, great. Everybody's talking about the environment. Mm. Xi Jinping has three major policy focuses. One is the environment, one is poverty alleviation, and the other is debt. Mm, okay. Now, people find it difficult to compute how does China, that the Western media like to portray as being environmentally poorly governed, mm. have a focus on the environment. Mm. Well, if you'd have been looking at the last two or three five-year plans, you would have seen that the environment was front and centre. Mm. If you look where their investment's going, you can see that the environment is front and centre. And so for the, for the current five-year plan, what, what areas do you see um, are quite complementary to what Australia provides China? Well, of course, in the, the environmental focus, one of the biggest areas of the environmental focus is on agriculture. Mm. So there are two major things to look at in agriculture. One is, again, environment. So we found a big focus on non-source points, particularly one of the things that, that uh, has had a lot of coverage has been the uh, pollution from pig farming. Mm. So pig farming, lots and lots of areas, pig farming is just disappearing. Pig farming is moving away from all the waterways on the eastern seaboard, moving inland, becoming industrialised, larger. So we have the environment focus. So there's this on water quality, there's also soil quality, air quality. There's been overuse of fertiliser and other imports, which of course have also affected waterways very dramatically. The other area in agriculture is called rural revitalization. Mm. So this is another major policy that has been um, in the works for a while. We heard about it very specifically at the 19th Party Congress last autumn. We've heard more about it at the uh, two sessions meetings of the National People's Congress mm. in March this year. Rural revitalization is about turning around the rural economy to be more vibrant, to retain populations, yeah. to make 
the countryside attractive place for people to be with good jobs. So it's, it's, it's a sort of 360-degree look at how we operate in mm. the country. In the past, the countryside had served the cities. It served industrialization. But now the focus is on rebuilding agricultural lifestyles, rebuilding agricultural communities, and looking, most of all, at their environmental footprint. So in terms of what does this do for Australia is that focus on food self-sufficiency is no longer number one. So it's not to say that China is importing massive amounts, but it is to say that it recognises its limitations. One of the policies that it has in place in the countryside is to maintain and improve arable land for when they need it. Mm. But if the price of grain on international markets is going to be more competitive, then we leave this land fallow. Now, when how this policy eventually comes into play and mm. how much we will see them relying on international markets is yet to be seen. But what we are very aware of is that we, we look at their forward planning. The Outlook Conference is run by the Chinese Academy of Agricultural okay. Sciences. It publishes its forward projections for, I think, the next 10 years on what it's expecting to import. It's a very, very good indicator mm. for, for the, agri the international agricultural community of what the window is mm. for imports. In terms of so Australia can't sit on its laurels, but the Chinese market is increasingly quality-driven. And what our producers need to focus on is maintaining quality and also maintaining their relationships with the market here. We see more and more Australian agricultural businesses mm. and industry associations coming up to China, and this is very good for our long-term mm. agricultural trade. I've talked about quality in terms of major commodities, but of course quality is also very important in terms of processed and other food products. Mm. There is more and more of a market here, particularly amongst the young and the middle classes, for a greater variety and more food, international food products. And of course, e-commerce mm. is booming and we have a lot of platforms setting up in Australia. More and more uh, interaction at the e-commerce level. And I think that this is a big growth area mm. for, for food products. Mm. Um, now, you mentioned the Made in China 2025 initiative. Um, what are the prime policy objectives? The prime policy objectives there are to help China to move up the value chain. Mm. China has a massive population. It is no, can no longer be the low-cost factory of the world, and it has to move up and compete with other countries in the world. Mm. So it is the Made in China 2025 initiative is focusing on strategic industries, on 
very, very much on the tech sectors mm. in improving uh, China's tech capability. Mm. So this plays out across all sectors. Of mm. course, this is this is the the frontier that um, all major economies are focused on. Mm. Um, now, you also mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. As it stands, Australia has not signed the MOU. Um, to what extent do you see Australia playing a role in Belt and Road? I think uh, the Australian position is on a potential MOU on the Belt and Road is, is very sensible. The organisations that should be involved in Belt and Road are commercial players. Mm. The Belt and Road Initiative is initiative to build infrastructure, ports, railways, uh, airports, other major infrastructure initiatives around the world. And these are actually built by the uh, commercial sector. Mm. They are, the loans are commercial loans. And uh, apart from governments who have other reasons mm. to work more closely with China. Um, I don't see that that an MOU makes any difference at all okay. to whether Australian industry can be involved in mm. the BRI. Two years ago, the signing of CHAFTA was met with great rejoice um, in Australia. What was the uh, response of CHAFTA in China? China is very focused mm. on building its trade policy credentials and is it was interesting that it took a long time mm. but that Australia and China did sign. One of the things that I think probably played into that is China was more and more aware that it needed to sign higher quality trade agreements if it was going to be playing in this field. Mm. And so it, it, it helped. In the initial phase China was very wary about about the agricultural area, and as the agricultural area opens up, it becomes easier for it to make those agricultural agreements. But of course, it's keen on other things. You know, mm. services are very important yeah. now, and services are growing here. And so, overall, China was at the stage where it wanted mm. to really start increasing the number of bilateral trade agreements that it has. Okay, Philippa, so in, in what areas of the Chinese economy do you see keeping China policy busy in the coming years? I think the most important service that we provide to our clients um, and particularly to our public sector clients, mm. which are governments, embassies, multilateral organisations, is that it's important to watch what is happening across the spectrum okay. of China's policy development. It's very difficult sometimes to understand what's happening in one particular sector when you're not looking right across the board at what is happening across other sectors. Mm. Um, you know, the, of course, this is, this is what we do, so we therefore think it's important um, in terms of where other areas that keep us very busy, mm. for Australia, the agricultural sector mm. keeps us very busy. And at the other end of the spectrum in Australia, I would say the other area that's keeping us very busy is the science and innovation sector. Oh, right. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Philippa, thanks a lot for your time today. 
Thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Philippa for having me at China Policy's Beijing offices. For more information about the services China Policy offers, you can visit this episode's show notes at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. And I also recommend you sign up for China Policy's free monthly roundup newsletters at www.policycn.com. Our thanks also to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's Australia-China Council for their support of the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, Zai Jian. Zai Jian.